Every person matters in the body of Christ. And not only does every person matter in the body of Christ, but everybody is gifted in the body of Christ. I don't know, you probably think, oh, not me, you know, I'm, I'm not gifted, I'm not one to get up and talk or play one of those instruments or, you know, I'm not one of those who, when we have times of prayer like that, I'm immediately drawn to go pray because I'm, I don't, I'm not a gifted person and the Bible would teach otherwise. God's Word says every single person has spiritual gifts of some sort or another. We don't always know what they are. We're not always aware of them. A lot of times it's just because we haven't been looking for them. We haven't asked the Lord, what is it that you have prepared me to do? But we know, again, the Bible says, Psalm 139, that he knit you together in your mother's womb, which means he prepared you the way he wanted you to be prepared. He made you the way he wanted you to be, and he has gifts for you that completely complement the person that you are so that you can function in the body of Christ and so the body of Christ can build each other up and minister to each other. This has nothing to do even with... Well, I guess it, it eventually will have something to do with what we're talking about this morning, but to take time to pray for each other this morning was not in the agenda that I had laid out. But when Steve was talking, and I was sitting back there, he said something that just struck me and said the body ministers to each other and God very clearly said to me do that let's do that nothing hocus pocus about it gang it's just the body loving each other which is what we're called to do right let's open up our Bibles we're going to be in Numbers 17 I have more to say about that I'll come back to it in a minute but Numbers chapter 17 we were there last week Number 17. Now, before we read in that chapter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 gives us a wonderful promise. And that is that the Lord is not slow about His promise. Peter's talking about His return. He's talking about the coming of the Lord. And talk about the fact that toward the time of the end, people will begin to mock and say, you know, it's been 2,000 years since he said he was coming. So he's clearly not coming. Nothing's changed since the beginning of the world. It's all the same. Everything's the same as it was. It's kind of rolling on and rolling on. And so maybe he's not coming at all. Maybe you Christians are just a little nutty. Maybe you're just a little off. But Peter says the Lord's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. But is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now hear that. God is not wishing for any to perish. And Father, as we seek your word this morning, as we come before you to learn of you and about you and to learn how you would have us live in this world, God, remind us of your heart that it is not your will that any perish. That it's not your design, not your plan, not your scheming or your strategy that man should die. Help us to know this and embrace it. And in that same moment, embrace life as you have promised it for us. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you teach us this morning, you would draw us into your word, bring us very close to you, 
so that we might hear your voice today. And we trust in you to lead us clearly in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know the story. We talked about it last week. Numbers chapter 16, this unparalleled rebellion in the history of Israel. Things did not go well. The people rose up against Moses and Aaron, actually led by a guy named Korah. The Bible refers back to this several times. Korah's rebellion, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, these three guys who got sick of Moses' leadership, tired of Moses being the head honcho, the guy at the top, and they said, it's enough. You've gone too far, Moses. We don't want you to lead us anymore. And the Lord dealt with them. He dealt with them severely. You may recall, they stood in the doorways of their tents, and the ground opened up and swallowed them and their families and closed back up. And then 250 leaders of Israel, who in that moment had been standing with Dathan and Abiram and Korah in their rebellion, were all flash-fried by the Lord. Burned alive. The next morning, Israel wakes up and the people are in a panic and they're upset and they again rebel against the Lord and rebel against Moses. And the Bible tells us another 14,700 people died in a plague until Aaron could get a censer out and offer up incense and stand between, get into the gap between the people and the Lord to stop this plague that God was pouring out on the people. So you know the story. Well, now it's time to hear, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. God tells Moses to take Aaron's rod that we talked about last, last week. All the leaders of Israel had a rod, a staff. It was a sign of authority over each tribe, and, and Aaron had his sign of authority. He said, take all the, the rod, put them into the tabernacle. The next morning, whosoever rod blooms will be the man I choose to lead. Very strange request. They put all their staffs in there, their rods on the ground in the tabernacle. The next morning Moses goes in and brings them out. And Aaron's rod has not only budded, it's blossomed, it's flowery, and it has almonds hanging off of it. It's produced fruit. I love stories like that because it's just so cool how God comes up with these things, these ways of getting people to know what his intention is, what his will is. I'd just flick them with my finger if I was God. I'd just go down and go, pink, pink, punk, 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 and 11 guys would go flying, and Aaron would be standing there. It's very uncreative, but would make me feel quite powerful. God sends almonds. So this almondine rod... It's sitting there, and God tells Aaron to do something with it. tells Moses, I want you to keep this. In fact, place it in the tabernacle. Keep it there as a sign, a reminder of the rebellion of the people. Look at verse 12, number 17. After this whole story, it says, Then the sons of Israel spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, we perish. We are dying. We are all dying. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Are we to perish completely? Now the people of Israel had good reason to say what they were saying. They're saying, God, it's too dangerous to come near the tabernacle. Moses, we can't even come near it or we will die. We're all going to die. And they had seen the death. And it wasn't pretty. Hey, if that percentage of people died who were here in the bridge, if one or two people just kind of keeled over and died in the middle of a worship or, or a sermon or something, especially if I said, those who have not been giving will die, down they go, we'd all be like, where's the checkbook, hon? <laughs> Fill that out quick, you know? It would freak us out. No 
they responded this way. It's not a surprise that the children of Israel were absolutely freaking out. We're going to die. All of our family, people are dying all around us. If we go near that tabernacle, we're going to die. But what was God's reason for keeping Aaron's budding rod, that blossoming almondine rod, in the tabernacle in the first place? Look at verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Put back the rod of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels, that you may put an end to their grumblings against me, so that they will not die. The whole purpose of this rod, of this staff, is so that they will not die. It is not God's desire that people die. It's not what God sits around hoping will happen. He doesn't look forward to these punishments. This moment with Israel wasn't God's and the other going, Watch this angel, pow! It wasn't his desire. And I'll tell you this, gang. If there was anybody heartbroken at the loss of life in Israel, it was the Father. So that they will not die. God's will is, He's not wishing that any would perish, Peter tells us. He doesn't want anybody to perish. I've shared this before, but if you have friends or family who are not believers in Jesus Christ, it is not God's will that they perish, not His desire. And if it's hard for you to think about someone you know going to hell, how much harder is it for the Lord who does not want that to happen? I've had people come up to me and say, Rick, I, I'm, just, I'm so worried about my family member. And I don't know how God could do this. And I always uh, reassure them by saying, look, the Lord is more concerned about your family member than you are. The Lord is more father to your daughter than you are. More father to your son. He is more lover of your wife, gentlemen. More lover of your husband's ladies than you are. He is more concerned. If anybody is concerned for the lost in this world, it's God. Far more than we are. Which is not to say we don't care about those who are lost, those who are outside of Christ. But God is most concerned, it is not His will, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So why then, we ask, do they have to die? Why do they have to die at all? Why does anybody have to die? Yesterday was a funeral for Stuart Corey. Those of you who didn't know that Stuart passed away. An amazing, amazing man. And I knew him very little. Why did Stuart have to die? Now there are those who would say, He's healed. He's with the Father. He's lifted up. Man, now he really is lifting up his arms in praise. Now he really is moving about with angels. He has moved from that holy place that God had him on earth, that place of incredible intimacy in that wheelchair, to the real holy place with the Father in heaven. Hallelujah. Praise God. That's where we all want to end up. But it's hard on his family today, gang. It's hard on those who love Stuart, who love spending time with Stuart. Why did he have to die? Why does anybody have to die? Well, to answer that question, keep your finger in number 17 and go back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. In verse 15. By the way, there aren't a whole lot of verses this morning up on the wall behind me, but there are several that you just need to go to. 
to read with your own eyes to see. So follow along as I call out verses. Try and get there as quick as you can. Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but uh, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, you Bible students might know this. You might say, wait a minute. In the day that Adam ate of that fruit of that tree, he surely did not die. In fact, he lived to be 939 years, so he really didn't die. God said, if you eat of this fruit, if you take a bite of, of this fruit from this tree, you're going to die in that day. Didn't happen. He went on to live 939 years. Well, the Bible specifically refers to a couple of deaths. Two deaths that each person can face. Two deaths that are spoken of in Scripture back in chapter, or in, still in chapter 2, back in verse 7. It tells us that the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. There's something interesting there. Not only did he form him from the dust of the ground, a physical birth, but he breathed into him life, a spiritual birth. The man is formed in both ways. We have the physical and the spiritual. We're a physical creation with the possibility of physical death, just as Adam was created temporarily from dust to dust. And that's where we're all headed, gang, these physical bodies. So if you're a little tired of your aches and pains and soreness and hair loss and, and eyes growing bad and teeth rotting in your brain and all these things in your life, if you're tired of these things, guess what? It's just going to get worse. <laughs> that's where these vehicles are headed. Anyone who's bought a new car, you've had that experience. You get in the new car and it's great. It has that new car smell. Isn't it ridiculous that, by the way, they have those new car smell fresheners? They don't smell like, they smell like, I don't know, it's bad. But we're placed in these bodies. They're vehicles to get us through life, but they're going to get from bad to worse to worse and finally right back to dust. That's the physical deal. But there is a spiritual creation as well. With the possibility, not only of spiritual life, but of spiritual death. And in the day that Adam ate of the fruit, it's possible that he died a spiritual death. I'll tell you what, there is a picture of spiritual death there where he was moved out of intimacy with the Father, out of the garden, out into the world, out away from that constant daily walk that he had with the Lord. He lost that contact. That's a picture of spiritual death right there. By the way, the physical death... And these bodies getting older and not functioning well and all that, it's not one to fear. Jesus put it this way, he said Matthew 10.28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't worry about the physical body. Someone threatens your life, especially because you believe in Jesus. Take your best shot. Because you can't put an end to me. You're just going to send me home sooner. I'm alright with that. Now if you brought a gun with you to church this morning, please disregard what I just said. But I, I do believe, gang, that in the day that Adam ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that he did die. In that day. You might say, okay, but Rick, 939 years is not a day. It is to the Lord. Interesting. 
that it was short of a thousand years. Peter says, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is one is like one day. Adam lives 930 years just shy of a full day to the Lord. He did die that day. In that day, fellowship with God was cut off. Spiritual death happened. And that brings us to the real big question. Why did God put that tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden in the first place? He knew our nature. He knew Adam was going to eat of the fruit. He knew Eve was going to be deceived. By the way, you know that's how it happened. Eve was deceived. The man wasn't deceived. Adam knew exactly what he was doing. Eve didn't. Eve was deceived by the serpent. She got caught up in in a desire for godliness. Hey Eve, you want to be like God? Which tends to be of the feminine nature among our ladies. That tends to be the temptation to want to be godly. And godliness can be a temptation that takes you away from keeping your focus on the Father. But for the man, the man wasn't wanting to be godly. I've said this before and and cover little ears but you know if a naked woman offers you a piece of fruit what are you going to do guys? (laughs) If you were Adam alone in the garden with Eve honey have a bite of this fruit okay? (laughs) Honey eat that tree alright eat dirt alright you know I mean whatever she says he's there but the man gang (laughs) the man was not deceived The man knew he was not supposed to eat of that fruit. He ate it anyway. Why did God put that tree there? And here's the answer. Because God desires a true love relationship. A true love relationship. So he put a tree in the garden that man would eat from and die from. How does that make sense? It makes sense in terms of will. That God knows something that we tend to learn in this life. That love is not love without choice. And unless I choose to love God, how is God really to know? I know He's omniscient. I know He's all-knowing. But how is there the proof in the pudding that I really love God if I haven't chosen to love Him? If I haven't chosen to follow Him? If I haven't chosen to come before Him and repent and say, Lord, I can't do it without You. I need You. I want You. I want to be Your child. And so He gives us the option. Without the option, there's no love. But where there is love, there has been choice. I've shared this before. It still blows my mind. But Cheryl said, yes. <laughs> Want to get married? Yes. Really? Yes. You sure? Yes. Cool. <laughs> it was her choice. I tell my kids, how do you know mom loves me? Oh, she's nice to you. She cooks her meals. No, that's not it. She chose me. You know, she's old days. I mean, she's not in here right now. Oh, she is. Oops. She chose me. But dang God, God, listen to this. If you think you chose him, he chose you before the foundation of the world. He chose to choose to give us choice. That's how big his love is. Because he could have forced all of us into a little robotron. Hey, I love God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You know what I mean? That could have been the deal. There wouldn't have been any sin in the world. We just do what he says and that's all. And God says, no, I want you to choose me. I want to know that you love me. But you know what? I want you to know that you love me too. I want you to realize that you have chosen me. He chose to love us. He made that choice even though he knew it would be painful and not for us but for him. It would cost him everything. 
Paul says in Romans 5.12, Through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. That's why there's death. That's why there's death, because sin entered the world. And where there is sin, there is death. God said, if you eat of the fruit of the tree, if you rebel, if you sin against me, you will die. That's a pronouncement of spiritual law from the very beginning. And so where there is sin, there must be death. And if we sin, we must die. The people of Israel got it right. They did. Back in number 17, they said, everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord, must die. If you're a note taker, you might want to jot a couple of things down here. Number one, a very true realization that the sanctuary of the Lord means sudden death. The sanctuary of God means sudden death. Coming near to the Lord absolutely requires, it means sudden death. Because God is so perfect and we are so not. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Death. If you sin, you must die. Anybody been sinless? Let's say in the last month. Alright, that was a little hard. The last week. Today? <laughs> Anyone had a sin-free day? One or two are going, I, I think so. Arrogance to sin. <laughs> Everyone who comes near to the Father must die. If we have a hint of sin, a smudge, a smidge, it, it, the tiniest little dot of sin in our lives, we cannot come into His presence. It will kill us. Because to be in the light of God, you must be perfect light as well. You must be sinless. One speck of sin and we're toast. And that's the deal. Because of who He is, His very nature, His very nature of perfection demands perfection of any who would come into His presence. And that's why, and hear me on this, that's why sometimes church is not a comfortable place to be. That's why sometimes on a Sunday morning, as we gather together as family, and though we worship together and it felt good, and we, and we get together and we pray for each other and it feels good, there are also times when the body gathers together and it is uncomfortable. In fact, there are times, gang, where it's downright dangerous. Right, BJ? Yes. <laughs> BJ came up to me, was last Sunday? And asked me just to stop with the messages that were, because he was feeling convicted. A little tired of it. <laughs> well, brother, I'm a little tired of preaching it too. Right. It's not. <laughs> it is not about being in a feel-good environment. Can we just get that out on the table? Church is not always about feeling good. Sometimes God uses what we have together and our time together to move us uncomfortably out of the safety net and into the wild of His love and His grace. And sometimes that's uncomfortable. And sometimes, as the people of Israel shouted out, the tabernacle is a dangerous place to be. The church is a dangerous place to walk. And gang, if we're speaking the truth and we are sticking to God's Word, it is going to get uncomfortable in here. From time to time, it's just going to happen. 
Paul says Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, we are all to grow up into all, into Him who is the head, Jesus Christ. Now, last weekend the Jaretskis were out of town. I didn't ask permission to talk about this, but I'm going to anyway because I'm, I'm up here and they're down there and I can do that. <laughs> they went to visit Jewish relatives down in San Francisco some brothers and sisters to go to a bar mitzvah and to go to some you know, services that were there. And the last day, Frank tells me that they were there. They were having you know, a, a nice time. They were going to get out of there and, and head north for the last day, but they were compelled. Some people said, ah, stay around a little longer. So they did. And the question came up. You mean to tell me that if I don't accept your Jesus, that I'm going to hell? Boy, look at the time. We really need to get going, honey. <laughs> what do you do when you're faced like a, with a question like that, especially from someone who is saying in that moment, I don't accept your Jesus. I do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I don't accept that He died and resurrected for my... Th- I don't accept that right now. Someone saying that and then asking you the question, so does that mean I'm going to hell? Well, you've got a couple options. You can shy away from it. You can say, yup, and hit the road. You can open the scriptures as fast as possible and try and come up with an answer. But the reality is, that's a tough question. Because the Bible does say, it's only through Jesus that we're saved. It's only through Him. Oh, it lets you ask uh, Frank and Sharon how that went. <laughs> oh, no, no, ask them. It's a good story. But they did lay it out there. They laid it out there and spoke the truth. you got to speak the truth, gang. Truth is uncomfortable. The truth may cost you friends. It may cost you family. At least in the short run. Hopefully the truth, though, will find its way in. Turn in your Bibles quickly now to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 12. And tells us something about speaking the truth, about the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, we bought some swords when we were in Israel for Corey and Hayden. They each got a little, kind of a Roman-looking sword. And those things look sharp, but they are not sharpened. They can be. We could take them and have them sharpened and you know, take somebody's head off with them if we wanted, I guess. Not that we would. But these are not sharp swords. The Bible, however, is sharper than any two-edged sword. Which means if this book, if these words are that sharp, they will cut. They will hurt. It will be uncomfortable. Goes on and says they are piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And listen to this: there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Open and laid bare. Two interesting words there. The word "open" is gumnos. Gumnos in the Greek, which is literally naked. You stand naked before the Lord and laid bare. Laid bare is an interesting word. It's trachelizo, where we get our word for trachea. Why? Because trachelizo literally means by the throat. Reading it in that context, it says that all things are naked and caught by the throat. (laughs) With the eyes of him that we have to do. They used to take a knife for a convicted criminal 
and they would strap it onto his chest, his hands tied behind his back, the knife strapped onto his chest, and the point of the knife straight up under the chin. So that if convicted criminal looks down, the knife would pierce right up into his gullet, right into his throat, and kill him. So he couldn't do that. He would have to stay looking straight forward, and then they would bring his accuser and make him look eye to eye with his accuser. That's us with God. Naked and trachalizo, caught by the throat, face to face with God, and all we have is what we are right there. Naked and laid bare before Him. And that's what the true Word of God does. It strips away all of the bogus lies. It strips away all of the excuses. It tears away from our lives all the reasons why we might give, why I don't want to be involved with church, or I don't need that Jesus, or I'm a good person, and on and on. The truth, the truth tells us one thing and one thing for certain, and that's that if we want to come before God with our deeds and what we've done, every one of us will come up short. Do you hear me? If you think being a good person is going to get you into heaven, you will come up short. Flip over to Revelation chapter 20. Last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 20. Verse 12. We'll be studying this in a few weeks down the line on a Sunday night. It's a powerful passage. There's confusing things in it that we will learn and, and, and see very clearly. But I want you to hear this. Revelation chapter 20 verse 12 says, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. So there are different kinds of books there. There's the book of life, but there are other books that are open. One of those other books, you can call them the book of deeds, or the books of deeds. The books of the things that you've done. These books are all opened up, and it says the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And if you rely on your deeds to save you, game, you will die. And I'm not talking about a physical death. I am talking about a spiritual death. And the eternal death is you rely on your deeds, your works, your abilities, your goodness to save you. You will die. Because everyone who comes into the tabernacle of God, based on their own goodness, must die. The Israelites cried out. They saw that. Everyone who comes near the tabernacle must die. The sanctuary of the Lord means sudden death. Now you might say, but Rick, what about this book of life thing? That looks good. Can I get in that book? Absolutely. In fact, you have to be in that book to be saved. Revelation 21, verse 27, speaking of the new Jerusalem and the home God is preparing for those who believe in Him. It says, Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The only way you can be saved is for your name to be in that book. How do I get into that book? Listen, and this is the good news. The sanctuary of God means sudden death, but the sacrifice of God means sudden life. Sudden life. This is one of the most breathtaking truths of Christianity. Listen to me. In the split second that you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you enter into sudden life. Sudden life. 
It's not that you accept Jesus and begin working toward Him and begin doing better and begin looking more righteous and eventually down the line you get life. No. The moment you say, Jesus, I believe in you, boom, sudden life, you are saved. Really? Can it be that simple? Is that possible? I'll let Jesus tell you, John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Out of death into life. Sudden death. Sudden life. Just by believing. Paul puts it this way, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And that's the painful, perfect choice that God made so that we could have choice. That we might choose him. He gave himself up for me because he loves me so much. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus' death, his sacrifice, is proof positive that God does not want you to die. He doesn't want people to die. Romans chapter 5 verse 7 One will hardly die for a righteous man Though perhaps for a really good man Someone would dare even to die But God demonstrates his own love for us In this That while we were still sinners Christ died for us That's love man That's sudden life And the Lamb's book of life is simply full of names of people Who have just said I believe I accept that I believe in you Jesus And once you do, gang, judgment day is over. That day of judgment in Revelation 20 we just read, it's not for you. Did you realize that? That judgment day, when the books are open and the dead are judged, is not for someone who's given their life to Jesus. Your judgment day is history. It's past tense. It's 2,000 years old. It happened on a hill called Calvary. Where Jesus was crucified and in that moment, judgment day. And anyone who believes in Jesus, that was your judgment and your judgment is over. You're saved. But what the children of Israel failed to recognize was that God devised this blooming rod as a reminder of rebellion so that they would not die. That's what the cross is. It's a rod. A a post of wood on which Jesus died that reminds us of our rebellion that's what it does you know when we take communion when we consider the cross and think about the death of Jesus that death was my death that's where I belong it is a reminder of my rebellion why? so that I will not die so that by belief in Jesus I will I must live now all that to say this Christians and if you're not a Christian I hope you've heard that. Jesus wants you to pass out of death into life and it's simply by believing in Him. But I need to talk to the church this morning. So you guys listen up for a minute. Lest we go around feeling like martyrs and victims and say, woe is us, the world is against us. There's a reason why people recoil against Christianity. There's a reason why non-Christians in your life, in your world, when you start to bring up Christ, will back off from you. And the reason is interesting to me and it has to do with this almond rod. That bore these almond clusters. Now think about this for a moment. Do you think the smell of almonds might have had a different impact on an Israelite after this day? Do you think every time someone smelled almonds, 
but they might think about that blossoming rod of almonds. But it might change their whole perspective of that little piece of fruit. I, I experienced this when I was a child. I was eating tricks. Because tricks are for kids. And as I ate it, I was enjoying it. It was a big bowl of tricks. And you know, you have the first bowl and then you pour for the second bowl and the milk gets all pink and tasty. And I just love that. I did then. Because it was just that night that my body decided to get the flu. Tricks the second time is not as pretty as tricks the first time. I'm telling you, those fruity little nuggets don't look as good in the commode as they do in the cereal bowl. I'm just telling you the truth here, okay? Since that day, every time I see or smell tricks, I get that little nauseous feeling. Keep the tricks away. I can do Fruit Loops, okay? Apple Jacks are fine. Tricks, it just changed the whole thing. I can't even smell tricks without feeling that nausea. I wonder if the smell of ripe almonds was different for the Israelites. Where are you going with this? Listen, when you move from sudden death to sudden life, when you are a person who has passed out of death and into life, you start to smell different. You will smell different. The sending of God makes me smell different. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians in the New Testament, about midway through the New Testament. Chapter 2. In verse 14. When you pass out of death and into life, it changes literally your spiritual chemistry and you will start to smell differently. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. You ever experienced that during worship or maybe in Bible study? A verse comes across and it just smells good to you. And you just go, oh, I just love that. Oh, the song. I love, Lord, I just love singing this to you. Sweet aroma. And then Paul says, we, verse 15, are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? Paul, what are you saying? He's saying that some people will take a whiff of you, Christian, believer in Jesus. Some people will walk up and go, ooh, death. You sink like a corpse. Other people will come up to you and take a whiff and breathe and go, ah, life. Life. Oh, I just love being around you. You just stink good. Gang, listen. The difference is all in the nose of the smeller. I can guarantee that to, El- to, to Aaron, almonds always smell good after that day. Oh, I love those almonds. I mean, if they made a scent, a perfume, an aftershave out of almonds, Aaron would have worn it. Because the almondine rod was all about God saying, this is my high priest. I'm giving him my authority. I am backing Aaron. And Aaron's like, yeah, smell the almonds. Smell them. It's good stuff. Smell those almonds. It was sweet to him. To Israel, not so sweet. To Israel, a reminder of rebellion. It's all in the nose. To the dying gang, safe people always think of the grave. 
to someone outside of Christ, there is that, that conviction, that, that negative feeling that, oh, man, I don't need you. You're saying that your Jesus is the only way, which means that your very life stands in condemnation of mine. Is that true? To the dying, saved people stink of the grave. You'll be called intolerant. You'll be called judgmental. You'll be called closed-minded. But listen, don't back off of the truth. Don't back down from a message. Why? Because it's the only way someone's going to be saved. They're not going to be saved by you dancing around. They're not going to be saved by you trying to act like or look like them. A lost person is not going to be saved because you're so compassionate as to sin alongside them. We did drugs together. I thought that was the way to bring him to Christ. Yeah, we went out. Well, he's my drinking buddy. And I just don't want him to feel, you know, embarrassed. So when I'm with him, yeah, I probably drink a little too much. What kind of thinking is that? That's not going to save anybody. I'll tell you what saves people. The message of Jesus Christ. And the gospel may not smell good to someone who is being convicted. And they may push it away. And they may say, you are not being fair with me here. Don't shrink back. People need to smell their own death coming. They need to smell it. Hebrews 10.39 says, We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Again, Aaron's rod was meant to be a sign against rebellion. Why? So the people would not die. That they would be reminded, yes, of their rebellion, of their sin, so that they wouldn't do it again. That they might not die. The sending of God makes me smell different. To the dying, saved people will stink of the grave. But listen close. To the saved, saved people stink good. Saved people smell good to other saved people. I had a friend in high school. Her name was Vonnie. And and Vonnie used to say that all the time. She'd come walking up and go, Ooh, you, you stink good. And this cracked me up. You stink good, but it's right on target. Now think about this. Where was where was this budding rod of Aaron placed? Where did God tell Moses to put it? In the tabernacle. What is the tabernacle a picture of? Any guesses? What does the tabernacle among the Jewish people remind you of? The church. The church among Christians. The place where we gather to meet the Lord. Not not the barn, not buildings, but the gathering together. The unifying of our hearts. Jesus saying, where two or three are gathered together, I'm there with them. The church, the body, the fellowship, the tabernacle gang in the Bible foreshadows the church. Now I'm telling you this for a certain reason, and here's where we're going with all this. For far too many of us as Christians, church bashing is a favorite pastime. Do you ever just get tired of people ragging on the church? And I'm not talking about non-Christians. I'm talking about Christians. Getting down on the church. Saying negative things about the church. And meanwhile, God's saying, Funny, I'm the one who came up with the idea. I'm the one who put you all together, you little nuts, you almonds. I put you together. This is my plan. You got a better one? The church gang... The church, especially to church people, saved people, ought to smell good. We should enjoy the smell of each other. Unless it gets a little too warm in here, that could change physically. But church bashing, 
happens so constantly. And, and you know why it happens? I'm convinced of this. It happens because we as Christians get self-centered in our faith. We get so self-focused on what the Lord can do for us. I started talking about this a little bit last week. The whole idea of coming into a place and making it about me. And it's that kind of self-centeredness, self-centered faith, gang, that always stinks, even in the name of Christianity. What do you mean? Let me push this a little more. We need to be those who aren't always turning up our noses at each other or turning up our noses at the church. We need to be those who aren't always looking for what God's going to do for me next. Making it all about me. Talking about, Lord, I just I want you to do this for me. How do we focus on life? How do we smell good? And focus on that sweet fragrance here in the body with each other. Jesus said it really simply. He said, love God and love people. Last week we ended up talking about loving God. That you bear fruit and the first fruits go to the Father. The first fruits on the vine. The best that you have. And you give that to God. When you come in here to worship, your worship is to the Lord. When you come in here to, to study His Word, you're studying His Word for the Lord. Your life is for Him, first and foremost. But secondly, Jesus said, and love your neighbor. And you know what's interesting about that? There's nothing in that about me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And I've heard all kinds of sermons saying, well, you can't love your neighbor as yourself until you really learn to love yourself. Which is so ridiculous because God's answer is you want to learn how to love yourself, you love God first and you love your neighbor. And guess what? You're going to be someone that you like to smell. You're going to be someone that's not so bad to be around because you love people and you love God. And you're focused outside, away from this internal me, me, me. What's the Lord going to do for me? What are all these other brothers and sisters going to do for me? How are you going to make my life better today? Man, if I'm focused on loving you and loving God, my life gets better. God knows that. And this, by the way, is kingdom living. Kingdom living is when we're looking at the Father and we're looking at other people and our love is going out from ourselves and it's not focused on ourselves. And Peter's the prime example of it. You remember this story. John chapter 13. Jesus comes out and it's the night of the Last Supper and there's, there's kind of a, a, a weird feeling among the disciples. Something's wrong. Jesus is very serious and he does the weirdest thing in the world. He strips down to a towel, grabs a basin of water and starts washing the apostles' feet. Now they're all watching this going, what's going on? Something strange here. He gets to Peter. And Peter says, don't wash my feet, Lord. Martyr. Don't wash my feet. And Jesus said, Peter, i got to wash your feet. <laughs> because you stink. No, he says, i got to wash your feet or you'll have no part of me. And what does Peter says? The typical, typical human response, Peter says, well, not just my feet, but my hands and my head too. Wash me all. I want more and more. And Jesus says, you don't need more. You just need your feet washed. I was thinking about this this week. Why was it just his feet that needed to be washed? Because his feet were what Peter would use when he was sent. His feet were washed so that he could go. So that he could take the message to other people. So that he could love others. It wasn't about him. 
If it was about him, Jesus would have washed his hands and his arms and his head and given him the full shampoo and the whole thing. But it wasn't about Peter. This isn't about you, Peter. I'm showing you, I'm giving you, Jesus says, an example that you should do the way I have done. What's that? Wash each other's feet. Love each other. Give yourselves to each other. And gang, the Israelites were whining so loudly, we're all going to die, that they couldn't hear the Lord say, I want you to live. Do this so that they will live. Oh, we're going to die. No, no, I really want you to live. No, we're going to die. I'm putting the rod in the tabernacle so you can live. Oh, we're going to die. They were so self-centered. The Lord was saying, I want you to live. And listen, the degree to which, listen, the degree to which I learned to live for the kingdom, that is the degree to which I will experience life in the fullest. The more I live for the kingdom, the more I will experience life the way God intended for life to be experienced. But the more I focus on myself, the less I'm going to experience that. It's a spiritual truth. Matthew 6.33, Jesus said, You seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these other things, the washing of the hands and the head and all this other stuff, that will be added to you. So gang, if you've passed out of death and into life, how can I say this? If you've passed out of death and into life, would you stop asking for more life? And would you just start living the life God's called you to? A life of loving Him and loving other people. And let that be the focus of your faith. No more me. Enough of me. More of you. More of them. More of Him. That prayer is going to get you home a lot quicker. Father, empty us of ourselves. We just... As we sang earlier, we're holding on tight. We get into these places where we just settle into our own natures and what you can do for us and our experience of you. And and meanwhile, Father, so many, so many are lost. It is my prayer for this fellowship that we would be among those who are sent and among those who are in the world preaching and speaking your name and knowing it may cause a stink knowing it may not smell good knowing it may upset people but also knowing it is the only way to bring salvation Father your servant Paul said I'm not ashamed of the gospel may we be those who are not ashamed of the gospel May we embrace it and bring it. I pray, Father, only that our love for you would increase and our love for other people would increase as well. People in the body, people in the church, and people in the world, that we would be those who love you and others first and foremost. And in so doing, Father, use us however you see fit to build this kingdom. If you're not a Christian this morning and you want to accept Christ, it is so simple and the truth is so clear. Jesus Christ, His name is the only name given among men by which we must be saved. And so the Bible tells us, if you want to accept Jesus this morning, just pray with me. Jesus, I believe that You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the living God. 
I believe that you took my place on that cross and died for me. And I believe that you rose to life again. And in this belief, I confess my need for you and ask that you would come into my heart as my Lord and my Savior from this day forward. And Christians, those of you who have prayed that prayer maybe over and over a hundred times, would you also pray with me, Lord, use me, send me, and may I bear fruit for you in this world. In Jesus' name, Amen.